Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Journey Now podcast by Journey Church in Brentwood, Tennessee. For more information on Journey Church and our gatherings, please visit journeytn.com. Hi, everyone. This is Susie Lind, and welcome to the Journey Now podcast. Well, today I'm so excited to introduce you to my friend Brad Perry. With Martin Luther King Day coming up next Monday, I thought it would be great for us to hear from Brad about his story and his work as a teacher of African American history at Brentwood Academy. And you might recall meeting Brad last summer when he and his partner Anthony Hendricks from the public joined us the week following the death of George Floyd. If you'd like more information about The Public, you can go to their website, thepublicfranklin.com, and you can also hear more from Brad and Anthony on their podcast, which is called The Public Podcast. Enjoy this conversation with Brad Perry. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Brad. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, Susie. Thanks. Yeah, glad Thanks to be here. Being- Thanks for being with us. Um, I'm really excited for our community to hear about you and from you. Um, They got a chance to hear from you a little bit over the summer when you and Anthony uh, spoke with us on a Sunday morning. But you have a very fascinating story. And um, I just think it's, it's an important story. And I know you've told it many times. But I would love for you to share your story with us in terms of your life, what you do, your family, and all of that. Yeah. Wow. Um, Okay. So, you know, I think, first of all, it's really funny. You know, I've lived, I've essentially lived in Franklin my whole life. And it's always um, amusing to me when I get in a conversation with somebody I don't know or stranger on the street and they, you know, inevitably ask, you know, how long have you lived in Franklin? And then when I tell them I was not only raised here, I wasn't technically born here because my dad was in the military. And so I was technically born in Huntsville, Alabama, because that's where he was stationed. Um, But, you know, I've lived my whole life here. And when I tell them, not only have I lived, you know, almost my whole life in Franklin, but my, um, my children are 10th generation Williamson Countyans, you know, they, laugh and there's the inevitable, oh, you're the first person I've ever met who's actually right. from here. And I've heard that so many times. So um, obviously that's very much my story. So I'm, I'm starting to sound, I've noticed in the last few years, I'm starting to sound like my grandmother when I talk about you know Franklin <laughs> and growing up in Franklin and how the traffic, my, my grandmother used to always she passed away three years ago and was a very important person in my life and mm. kind of the matriarch of our family. But she would always complain about the traffic in Franklin. And she was complaining about That's it 25 amazing. years ago, you know, 25 years ago. Um, well, and- I've only lived here five years and I moved <laughs> from LA and I'm starting to complain about yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and you're an expert on traffic. Exactly. So, um, <laughs> being from LA. So um, it's kind of funny that you know, and, but I do, I mean, I do, Franklin is really different than when I grew up and, and literally was riding bikes all over downtown and playing hide and go seek at night in the, in the town. And I joke mm-hmm. that when I was in high school, you know, on Friday night, that you would see tumbleweed going down main street, you know, just because there wasn't, and now obviously now, obviously this is before COVID, but even right. with COVID, it still seems to be pretty slammed down there. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the sidewalks are packed. It's almost like a little mini New York city when the uh, crosswalks go at uh, five yeah. points, you know, all the people crossing. So, um, and, and that's really, I guess the, the beginning of my story. I mean, I grew up 
in in a very communal, I think, way in terms of I was always surrounded by um I mean, literally my, my great grandparents, I mean, I have pictures I have probably on this wall behind me. Oh, mm-hmm. it's, this isn't, you're not watching, nobody's watching this. <laughs> I, have <a> bunch <laughs> of pictures behind me. I mean, I have pictures of five generations of my family. So I grew up wow. around great grandparents, great, great uncles, mm-hmm. um, you know, second, third cousins. I mean, it was just a huge, ex, you know, extensive family structure. And, and we were, I mean, it's even today, I mean, inevitably I'll run into people who are my distant cousins and, you know, so it's, it's just, I grew up in that. I didn't think about it. That was normal for me, Mm -hmm. obviously. Um, But at the same, you know, and it was a very, uh, I don't know. I I think one of the interesting things when I look back at my life is there's not really neat boxes for a lot of it, which um, I'm a person who, and I think this is going to go into my theology a little bit. I I've always found myself drawn towards thinkers who you can't put into a, a nice neat box. Okay. And, you know, looking at our political climate and I, I would dare say even our spiritual climate, that's what we want to do. We want to say right. this person is all one thing. This person is all this thing. Right. Um, and I've, I've recognized, and I've recognized this a long time ago that I've always been drawn to people that you couldn't do that with, you know, I mean, I joke, I used to joke when, you know, for a time when I was at, you know, um, I was at Christ community church, how, you know, which is obviously a very reformed, very structured theology and half the quotes in the, um, sermons or even that were printed were from Catholic thinkers, yeah. wow. <laughs> you know, or people who weren't reformed thinkers. And it's, uh, and I don't know, I always love that. And, um, there seems to be a lot of freedom and, um, it's, um, I just feel like you can be a little less dogmatic or thinking that you're right. Um, yeah. when you have all these, um, you know, sources and dif- different kinds of thinkers that you're pulling from. And so anyway, um, so I grew up in, in that kind of setting. Um, of was that encouraged very, just real quick? Was that encouraged yeah. by anybody in particular? The communal thing, you the think? being drawn to thinkers in th- that are outside. Well, the I don't know. I mean, um, you know, not to get it. It might just be a personal thing. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm a nine on the Enneagram. I okay. want people to, you know, I'm a, I think I'm a peacemaker. Um, I want, I want people to get along and to love one another. Mm-hmm. I, you know, don't want to, it's weird because I've kind of found myself some this summer with some of the the social justice and the racial equity things we were talking about. Um, I mean, I'm not somebody who's trying to really rock the boat and trying to, you know, be this, um, you know, stir of unrest, um, though, you know, I oh, but you have a, my friend. Well, I've been, <laughs> I've been them, I didn't know I was a Marxist and uh, a oh, communist yeah. and, uh, you know, racist even, you know, a lot of these things. So, um, but I think that it probably comes from that part of me. I mean, okay. I do think that, but I also think that when I look at my family and I've talked about this from a racial standpoint, you know, I can, there were some people in my family who were seen as, um, uh, I don't know, like my, like people like my aunt was very much mm-hmm. um, connected to what was going kind, kind of just on the outset of the civil rights movement in the seventies. But my, my family, like my mom and her, parents lived, moved from here to Atlanta mm-hmm. when they were bef- right before high school. So they actually went to high school in Atlanta 
Okay. And uh, my aunt got really involved. And I mean, she's, she's a Supreme state Supreme court justice now. Okay. Tennessee state Supreme court justice. And she's been on the bench for, I don't know, 20 years in in that role. Um, But she worked for Andrew Young, who was, I think the second African-American mayor of Atlanta. And he was one of the leaders in civil rights movement. Um, And so yet also had family members who I can remember using the N word when I was a Mm -hmm. kid. Right. Um, And so, you know, it's, so I think just, you know, all these conflicting um, messages, maybe is the way to say it, um, came at me at a, at a time that, you know, you could, I was taking those things in, um, maybe not fully consciously that. So, um, so in terms of just wanting to pull from different kinds of thinkers, I just think as I've maybe gotten a little more mature and I think it, you know, I've just recognized that, I don't know. There's just not a lot of neat boxes for sometimes for certainly for God. Yeah. (laughs) I imagine Um, some of that comes from a deconstructing journey as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and in some ways I I saw it really early on because unfortunately, like, um, you know, when I became part of my faith journey is, you know, I didn't really grow up in a Christian home and we went to, we just went to church on Easter and Christmas and that kind of thing. And um, Which is so the, interesting, having such deep roots in the South. To me. Yeah, yeah. I, and, you know, my grandmother was, as I mentioned before, was kind mm-hmm. of a rock in our family. I mean, she was very faithful churchgoer. She was the First mm-hmm. United Methodist Church um, and my aunt as well. Um, and so there was definitely spirituality coming from them. Um, you know, I, but I didn't grow, grow up kind of with the language. So I had a fairly, I don't know if radical is quite the right word, but almost radical conversion experience because I became a Christian when I was a junior in high school and I did, I went to Berman Academy and it was the first time I was around Christians and who were, you know, you know, some who were serious about their faith and Mm -hmm. certainly had teachers. And, um, it was really relationships with those students and faculty that I think really brought me to faith in Christ. And then I immediately got involved well, I got involved in a, in a Bible study at Christ Pres Church, okay. and then I found out, well, Christ Pres is really a sister church with Christ Community. So I got involved at Christ Community, which is right up the street from my house when it was downtown Franklin. Mm-hmm. And um, I got involved with, with Scott Rowley. I got connected to Scott. Okay. And, oh, and wow. Scott's a guy, I mean, I, I don't know if you, how well you know Scott, but he's a guy who really doesn't fit very neatly in a box. Yeah, I don't <laughs> um, know even, Scott, but I hear amazing things about him. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. even though he was at, you know, Christ community in this reformed kind of setting. I mean, he was, you know, kind of a quasi hippie guy who really Mm -hmm. was passionate about um, racial justice and racial reconciliation. So the first person who really had a big impact on my spiritual formation at the heart of it was racial reconciliation, which, you know, I didn't know any better. I mean, but obviously 99% of white evangelicals, probably, I'm just making this number up, but that wasn't like their main focus. That wasn't a passion of theirs. You know, I'm saying youth leaders across the country. And so for whatever reason, I got connected with Scott and Scott was, and and Paige Pitts and others were, um, you know, they were doing these things in little Franklin, Tennessee that, Mm -hmm. you know, we're still talking about today. I mean, they were doing after school tutoring programs. They were you know, really the roots, Mercy Children's Clinic was very connected through that. I mean, they were doing, um, 
you know, caring about justice for the poor and racial mm-hmm. reconciliation, having conversations that, you know, maybe if I was born almost anywhere else and had the same upbringing somewhere else, it wouldn't have happened. And so, yeah. You know, so I as think, you're beginning to, to, to learn more about God and to grow in your faith, this is, this is part of that journey with you. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I mean, and obviously, and Chris Williamson was, was connected, was there. I mean, he was an intern mm-hmm. um, at Christ community and, and Franklin community ministries was started. And, and so, which eventually I did spend some time at, at strong tower, which is where I met Anthony mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And um, so, you know, I, I would say really early on in my faith journey, um, race was a big part of it. And, but then, but also because Franklin, once again, it was a really different, it was a smaller place. It was much more racially diverse when I grew up, I was really involved in sports. So all of our, like I, I tell people, so the basketball, local basketball league was at the opt old optimist gym on Columbia Avenue, which has since been torn down beside Carter house. That's where everybody played youth basketball and it was very diverse. Um, there were, wasn't all these little leagues. That was the league. <laughs> yeah. You know? And everybody who played baseball played at Jim Warren park. And, and so, um, that was, and I went to, you know, the, the public schools in Franklin growing up and I had, um, lots of African-American friends. I also had parents who were, great with that, you know, and I just, that was normal to me. They had, they come to my house. I went to their house. They spent the night with me. And so, um, you know, I, I didn't think it was anything special at the time, but looking back and even talking to my own students today, you know, that was probably, um, I don't know, decently, fairly rare, you know, that they never said, well, Brad, you know, that, that young man is, is black. And I don't know if he's, you know, there was never that kind of thing. It was just, sure. So, you know, that was my upbringing. And then when I, when I came to faith, the people who were pouring into me were passionate about racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and, you know, fast forward just a few years, I mean, I loved history and um, I got my, my um, undergrad and my master's in different kinds of history. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, and, and shortly after that, even as I started teaching at Brentwood Academy 25 years ago, um, I just started to read more and more specifically about African American history, and it became a real passion of mine um, to the point where um, uh, I guess it's now been 18 or 19 years. I went to wow. um, the head of our school to say, hey, I, I feel like there's some there's some um, gaps in the way we teach history. And um, and I, I tell the story that we had a, a class that was really focused on 20th century history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember the 20th century? Yes. Um, and it was, um, and there was hardly anything about the civil rights movement in the textbook they were using. It was like, you know, two That's pages. Crazy. Yeah. yeah, it was crazy. And, um, and so that was one of the sort of the impetus for, you know, you know, approaching the head of our school about that. And he said, sure, if people sign up, then you can teach it. And they made the way. And I've been teaching that ever since. And And so that's a curriculum that you wrote yourself, right? I did. I did. I mean, in 2000, I think I started really working actually in in some, some of the, the, the roots of that, um, curriculum, I was, um, spending time on a weekly basis with Chris Williamson. And we would talk about African-American history. I think he had some real interest in, and um, because I, I don't want to speak for them, but I, him, but I don't think he had a lot of formal teaching 
in that as well. So we would meet and talk and read things. And, um, and so some of the, the, the germs, I guess you could say of that class was from those meetings, but, um, but even 18 years ago, 19 years ago, there weren't a lot of great textbooks on African-American history. So there's a lot more now. Um, and so, yeah, I developed the curriculum and obviously I'm always tweaking it and adding things and, you know, changing things as we go. But, um, so, so, um, yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about, um, the, you had a, there was a moment, a, a really defining moment, I think for our community from what, from the way I experienced it, at least, um, I think it was last year in 2019 or maybe early 2020 when the public had a gathering and you talked publicly about your family's history with slavery mm-hmm. and you, oh, yeah, yeah. you had a you publicly repented on behalf of your family. Yeah. Right. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that and sure. and just coming to terms with, cause it sounds like your, your upbringing, your childhood was, was very gracious and welcoming and that was not yes. a thing for you. But then at some point, did you discover this about your history and, and how did that, how did that impact? Well, you? Yeah. And, and I want to be clear. I mean, even my upbringing, it was, and I had that influence of my grandmother and my aunt, mm-hmm. but I can also remember my grandfather who I love very much and even others in my extended family using the N word. Right. And yet my grandfather who owned a construction business at the time and um, had, um, there were a lot of African-Americans who worked for them, mm-hmm. him, um, mm-hmm. I think would have been seen as somebody who was, um, uh, a friend, I'll say, of the of the black community in the town. Ta- in town, yet I can okay. remember him saying so. Um, you know, I can remember these conflicting, yeah, <laughs> you know, images and and messages. Which sadly, that was. was probably normal too. It was. I'm I'm sure it was. And um and okay, so my my family. So I have this. Let me connect it to my class a little bit. So I have okay. this assignment. Um, we used to watch clips of Roots. Um, okay. from the original miniseries in my class, I, I don't anymore, but we do talk about it, um, because I think it's, it's really helpful. Um, but you know, so basically what Alex Haley did, he was a Tennessean Okay, so mm-hmm. that's important to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he went on a 12 year journey where he researched his family, went as far back in his family roots as he could. Um, and then obviously wrote this story of his family, bringing it all the way back up to the present time. You know, that's the story of roots. And obviously with, um, you know, now with people who do all their genealogy tracing stuff now, it's, you know, it's people, this is a very common concept, but I had an assignment that that I still give my students and I give it to them usually about February where I ask them to do the same thing. You know, you don't have to do make a 12 year journey. And usually their assignment is just having them talk to perhaps the oldest living person in their family, Mm -hmm. just to, just to, um, and some some families have really careful written records of yeah. their history. Some don't. And so I, the assignment is for them to um, have that conversation or do that research and to trace their family roots as far back as possible, bring it up to the present day. And if there is any connection with um, racial history, well, I mean, black, white, might be Native Americans, could be something else, then make sure you you know tell us about that. You know, it, it, yeah. some people it's, you know, they think it's, it's their, their roots are very boring and it's, you know, X, Y, Z, but that's okay. Just, you know, tell, bring us all the way up to the present. And so I share mine too. So I do this every year. 
um, with my students. And, um, but anyway, so in my history and I, we have very good written records in my family, they've done a great mm-hmm. job of passing that, that down. Um, and also there was a, um, a periodical put out in, um, 2000, it was, you know, the in honor of the 200 year anniversary of Williamson County. It was called Williamson County in black and white. And it sort of highlights the history. It, it's, it's, it's not a very exciting, it's not like a, it's not written like a, um, a novel, but it's really a lot of records mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. has a lot of slave records. It has a lot okay. of family records and it talks about, um, it highlights sort of the interactions of black and white people in the, in Williamson County. Well, you know, it says, you know, very clearly my family, um, was a very wealthy family in Williamson County. They owned, um, several plantations out Del Rio Pike meeting of the waters, probably the most, um, wow. um the most important one or the largest one, Mont- Montpier was another one. Um, and, um, you know, the, the title of that, the section, they were the Perkins family. They were, um, Williamson County's largest slaveholders. Wow. Um, so in 18, um, I think it was in 1841, they owned, you know, roughly mm-hmm. 240 slaves at one time. Um, and so, you know, my family, they were the largest slaveholders in the County. Um, and 240 is an, inc- is a huge number. And I, and I, I tell my students 90% of Southerners who owns, first of all, only 25% of Southerners own slaves, um, you know, roughly at any point leading up to the civil war, um, because you had to have money to own slaves, yeah. first of all, or land. Yeah. And so there's that, there's that point. And then of the Southerners who own slaves, 90% of them own less than 20. Okay. Okay. So, um, so what you had here is you had a, it's, you know, it's kind of like wealth disparity today. You have a few people owning lots and lots of slaves. And that Mm -hmm. was true for my family. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's really important. It's really interesting too, for me, because, you know, every time my students share and there's inevitably there's a handful who, Mm -hmm. whose families did own slaves. I've never heard them say, they, well, let me say it this way. They always want to tell the class how their family treated their slaves really well. Wow. (laughs) And, um, and so (laughs) not that I necessarily know if they did or didn't, um, but that's the narrative that's being, that's the narrative. I think that's a little, you know, it's, it's maybe connected to the lost cause narrative as well, where, you know, there's this idea that, you know, slavery was really good for the slave, the, the, the Southern kind of gentleman, the Southern hospitality thing of, you know, we treated all of our, our servants, our slaves well. Right. And history tells us that's not true. Not, not, not to mention just the idea of, right. of uh, not giving someone their freedom, not letting people make their own decisions, their choices. Um, so it's really important for me um, in my classroom. And I think through the public, one of our values is, um, you know, truth telling. Mm-hmm. And I think that history um, is, has to be about telling the truth because unfortunately, and we, that's such an obvious and a simple statement and, um, but in some ways, it's easier said than done. And, and we also know in looking at our history that history, we haven't always told the truth. Right. And, um, you know, whether it's, you know, 
Germany you having with, to write your own curriculum to teach a class. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and we don't want, and we want to make ourselves look good. Right. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, for me, I don't know, it was just really important to, um, because of the subject matter, because of what, a, what I'm teaching, I can't teach about the reality of African-Americans, their story, generally speaking, um, which, you know, there's lots of, I, I can't get away from, um, the oppression, the hardship, the struggle um, that they've gone through, generally speaking, and uh, clearly there's lots of success stories in the midst of it. There's yes. lots of incredible stories of overcomers, but I can't tell that story for historically speaking, and then somehow, you know, gloss over my own family's um, reality. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's always been really important, and um, um, you know, obviously. God's given me the the opportunity to to share that story many times, and so it's something that I I, um, I can't ever say. Well, my family didn't own slaves, you know, and yeah. that's something that people want to distance themselves from. And and obviously, when slavery ended, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the struggle mm-hmm. for African for um, people of color living in America. Um, and we know that, and there's still struggles today as well. And so, um, you know, it didn't just end at that point. So yes, that was, um, that was important. I think for me, especially this past summer, um, Mm -hmm. on the heels of, um, you know, the George Floyd murder and some of the other, um, things that we saw in our country to share that story, because it is part of not just my story, but it's a Franklin story. And, you know, I do think that there's links to, um, you know, even the statue on the square. I mean, also, I mean, I have a, a picture that statue was put up in 1899. I have a picture, um, of the, these all these women standing around the statue in 1900. This is just mm-hmm. a couple months after, and it's of the Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Well, my aunt gave me this picture, and she said I can pick out at least three of our relatives that wow. I know for sure. Okay, so I can also say that my family was part of putting that statue up, and um, and so you know I think that's it's connected, yeah, <laughs> you know, for me. Is. So yeah. And you've been very outspoken about the statue this year as well, which is, yeah, I mean, full circle, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I and I will continue to be. Yeah. Um, you know, I just I just have a big problem with the daughters of the Confederacy owning that piece of land, and and I have a bigger problem with um, what that statue stands for and and who and what it's honoring, and just don't feel like mm-hmm. it should be in what some many would argue is the most prominent place in our town. Um, I think they don't think it's a unifying um, symbol at all. So, so this year has been really interesting for um, people who call themselves Christ followers for the church. And um, just with everything that's been revealed through um, just the, I, I guess the, the awakening, if you will, for many people of, of the reality of racism still being a part of our country and our culture and, and in the fabric of, of really our country. And there's been a lot of conversation about the church's role in that and the role of the believer. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your own personal experience in terms of You know, some people say like, well, I don't think I should have to repent for someone else's sins, but you know, we can, we can go on about that and, and Mm -hmm. how that's not even, I mean, that's 
in the Bible, there's tons of stories about that, Mm -hmm. but like, how, how has that affected you personally, Brad, in terms of your, um, your own spiritual journey? Like how, how has what you've experienced in your, your whole story, what this year in particular, how is it shaping you currently as, as a spiritual person? I I like, I like what you said about, um, the fabric of mm-hmm. our society, I don't, uh, however you want to say that. I re- I'm reading a book right now by Isabel Wilkerson called Cast, mm-hmm. and it's she's really kind of framing um, our racial history as um, almost a caste system that we've developed in our country, and she compares it to India, and um, it's really, really well done. I mean, just you know, I'm still in the early stages of it, but it's making me, it's giving me. Uh, different language even to think about and um, to think about race in our country. And we are born into this caste system Mm -hmm. and that so much of it is white and black. I mean, um, Anthony does a great job when he talks as an African-American man, obviously, about how it's part of the air he breathes too. So there's things that he actually grew up believing lies about himself because it is the air that we breathe, as you said, the fabric. And so I think we just have to keep, um, um, I think we need people. And I think there's a lot of prophets out there, modern day prophets to, to, um, um, to make us aware of that. To, to let us know, to remind us, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, Dr. King obviously was, is a very easy one to look to from the sixties. And, yes. and I know um, we had talked about with um, uh, Martin Luther King day coming up. I mean, he was prophet. He was a pr- prophetic because he was um, telling, letting people know um, the reality of what was going on um, that many people couldn't see or they couldn't, um, they, they were, um, was, I don't know the right word to say to it, but uh, awakening that you shall use your mm-hmm. language, um, mm-hmm. help wake, wake people up. So, um, I think that that's, um, a really important point, um, to realize that we are born into this culture and I've talked too much and I've, I've lost the, your, your original question. What were you, what did you say? <laughs> I was just asking how it, how it's affected you personally in your own spiritual life. Yeah. Um, your own formation. Yeah. Okay. So I think that, um, for me, um, I have to keep, um, you know, I've really, it's really re-energized me and and given me a real, um, I, I need to hear from people of color in our community, but also in the, in the country, in the world, I need to listen to their voices and listen to them speak. Um, and, um, you know, I think that I, I've probably gotten into the trap at times of, of kind of the white savior mentality or mm-hmm. um, the, the idea of trying to, um, you know, be, be the, the, the enlightened one. And I think that what, what we've done, one of the best things I think that we've done at the public and we've done it from the beginning is to um, amplify um, black voices yeah. um, in our community and to give them um, and to, to really make sure they are not just speaking in our public meetings, um, but that they, you know, even in leadership on our, um, on our board now, which we've have formed um, to, to make sure that we're hearing from them. Um, as I have also done a really good job of teaching non-black voices how to listen. 
yeah. Yeah. Thank, by, the, thank you. by the nature of the way the meetings are set up, like, I mean, it really has been a practice and a learning of how to listen well. So thank you. And I, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that I've realized, and not to get off topic here, but even in my teaching African-American history at a place like Brown Academy, or even, even some of the teaching that I've done at the public, I think in many ways I'm teaching to a white audience mm-hmm. and I'm trying to, and, and I think if we're honest, I think there's a lot of white people who can probably only hear it, maybe if, at least for the first time from a white voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm talking about the history specifically. I'm obviously not talking experiential things, but, um, and so, you know, I've in some ways begrud- begrudgingly come to that reality. Um, and that that's part of my calling, I think is to, and once again, I'm just, I'm almost like the middleman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm taking the history and conveying it to people in the present. And, yeah. um, you know, there's not, it's not, it's not interpretive. It's, it's the truth. It's what it is. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, and then hopefully, you know, for, for believers, we believe that God can take all truth is God's truth. And, and mm-hmm. if, and God's going to do something with that. So that's really good. Yeah. You're doing a great job, Brad. <laughs> You're doing a great job stewarding your calling. Thanks. It's really, Thanks. it's really great to, to be around you and, and to learn from you. Um, we didn't even talk about your amazing wife, Stacy, and yeah. all your kids. Where mm-hmm. did you guys meet? Did you meet at well, Christ Community? Yeah, sort of. Um, so she was a, Stacy was a, we were in the same grade, but she was at Brentwood High School. And so I mentioned that Christ Community and Christ Pres were sister churches, and they used mm-hmm. to do their retreats together. Okay. So the irony is she lived in Brentwood and went to Christ Community. I live right up the street from Christ Community, but I actually went to Sunday services at Christ Pres on my own. Mm-hmm. And so we went we met in South Carolina. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Even though we went to school around the corner from one another on this retreat at a, the camp was called Awanata in South Carolina. And so that's where we met. And um and so we, we started dating our senior year. And so she, you know, then I, I started going to Christ Christ community. Mm-hmm. And so she was, you know, in many ways really discipled by Paige. Overton Pitts, who started New Hope Academy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I was, um, you know, really discipled by uh, Scott Rowley. And um, so, yeah, we dated through college. We actually got married in college and um, we've been married now over 25 years. Wow, that's we, awesome. We have, yeah. And and I think pa- also part of the journey for, for me as it relates to um, this passion, I mean, she is also passionate about this, um, yeah. these issues, and um, she's also, um, um, and she's also passionate about women's issues, as I mm-hmm. am as well. And she is, she's a much bolder person than me. So, um, you, when you said, you know, one of my practices has to be too. When you said, "Good job," I mean, my <laughs> first re- response, my first thought is. No, I'm not. I've done a terrible job and I'm not good. And so she, in many ways, is somebody who's continually pushing me um, to be more bold and to be uh, better and to take risks. And uh, um, because that's, um, you know, I'm always second guessing myself and, you know, depressed about (laughs) something or another. And and so she is um, an incredible human being and um, an incredible mom and, and wife and, and, 
and certainly my best friend. And so that's um, a good one yeah, to have, have in your corner. Yeah, we have six kids and my oldest is a junior at Belmont. My okay. uh, Knox and Paxson's a freshman at Georgetown, though he hasn't gone yet. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been, <laughs> I think I'm sitting at his desk. Um, and so hopefully he'll get to go at some point in the near future. My daughter, Sophia, is a junior in high school. Jack's a freshman in high school. And then we have twins, Henry and Micah, that were fifth graders at New Hope Academy. That's awesome. Yep. So people can also hear more from you at the public podcast, right? Yes. Yep. And yep. Um, those new episodes drop. How often do they drop? Well, we had, I think we had um, a, one or two drop on the 30th of December. Okay. Um, we've, we've, we've released eight and we're trying to take some things that we've talked about in bigger picture settings with some context at the public and really trying to focus a little more um, tightly on some topics. So like we talked about the last two episodes about systemic racism, um, we are actually going to record tomorrow. So um, there'll certainly be a couple dropping, um, I would say in the next 10 days or so. So yeah, check it out. And then when is the public going to be meeting again soon? Uh, We are, the um, board will be getting together soon. And so the plan is, will be to, I think we're going to have some have something in January. Obviously, right. um, you know, just so, so, so weird times. Yeah, big mm-hmm. time. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and that you know, there's been there's always things going on um, where um, you know people from our leadership team are getting involved and um, that you know might not even be out there, um, yeah, publicly, so to speak. So, yes, we will be meeting soon. Well, cool. People can check out your website for more information on that. Yes. Well, absolutely. I want to close with three quick questions for you, for, for our listeners, just to, to, to learn more from you. Um, the first question, and off the top of your head, whatever you can think of, who, who are you learning from, whether it's a podcast, a book, or, or somebody that you're meeting with regularly, who are you learning from? Um, yeah, that's good. So uh, I love podcasts. And mm-hmm. I, um, you know, listen to them on a daily basis. Sometimes I, I certainly listen to them as a release from deep or too serious thinking, but I also have some, some great ones that I listen to. Um, the, um, uh, Jamar Tisby is somebody that's, you know, we've talked a lot about, mm-hmm. um, and he is somebody that has, um, once again, he's one of those, um, African-American voices that I think everybody really should be listening to, especially mm-hmm. Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he wrote The Color of Compromise. And mm-hmm. he's part of a couple different podcasts. He has one called Footnotes. He's a hist- One thing I really resonate with him is because he's really a historian. Yeah. But he's also got theological training. Mm-hmm. And he's also done a lot of it in white settings. So he went mm-hmm. to Reformed Theological Seminary, I believe, in Jackson. Mm-hmm. He's getting his PhD from Ole Miss um, right now. And so... Um, he's a really an, an important voice and he's obviously has a lot to say to evangelical white community. Um, so his podcast called footnotes is, you know, is, is been really important to me. Um, he also is, um, kind of a co-host of one called pass the mic. So they are, the interesting thing about pass the mic is they're really speaking to, um, black Christians and I've found that is important for me to listen, almost like I'm listening into um, this discussion. And he does it That's uh, with a guy named Tyler Burns, who's an mm-hmm. African-American pastor. And um, and so, and the footnotes one is a little bit more, I don't know, focusing on history and even some current event stuff. 
so those are those are really important um, to me. Um, I think I'm always, you know, drawn in terms of my purely spiritual. Um, I've always been drawn to. Once again, um, I love Frederick Buechner, and mm-hmm. I always go back to Buechner a lot. And mm-hmm. um, um, Henry Nouwen um, is really important to me as well. And uh, I think those are guys who are, as I said at the beginning, are, are guys who maybe you can't quite put into a bo- theological yeah, box. Sure. Um, and so, um, even though they're not obviously um, now one's uh, p- passed away and, and Bigner's um, quite old. I don't think he's put out anything new <laughs> lately, but uh, um, just their writings have been so, cause they're so um, I guess authentic and vulnerable and, um, and um, probably willing to take some risks um, in, in their thoughts um, put on paper that really resonate with me. That's great. Um, how have you been caring for yourself during this season, this weird time that we're living in where everything's been disrupted? How have you been caring for yourself? Well, I think if, if Stacey were answering this question for me, she'd probably <laughs> say I'm not very good at self-care. Uh-huh. Um, but I think for me, uh, running is really important. I mean, Stacy and I walk or run. Um, I mean, almost every day is certainly on break and we do it on the weekends together. Um, so I think that's important for me to exercise and to running's always been a place where I can clear my head. I can, you know, if something, um, you know, if I have a big mm-hmm. uh, speech to give, or if I have something I want to, um, even hard, I can, um, it's a great time for me to think clearly. Um, it's also a good time, as I said, to listen to a dumb podcast about sports or about, yeah. um, about, um, you know, whatever movies, popular culture to, to clear my head and get away. So I think that's a, that's a really important, um, practice for me to exercise and to run. And, um, so yeah, that's probably that's number one. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What's yep. one thing that you can't live without on a daily basis? Um, a well, practice, uh, just something you consume, something you do, a person, anything. Yeah, uh, I, I would, <laughs> <laughs> on a purely uh, material basis, I think my AirPods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> going to the, the podcast thing, the running, because I, I have them in. Um, uh-huh. That's something that's, um, you know, really important. And I think that, um, you know, as I said, not to be too cheesy here, but, you know, Stacey and I are always checking in with each other. Um, you know, I think we communicate really well if um, she keeps me very grounded. And, um, and that's, so I think those conversations that we're able to have, you know, of course, we're on break, we're still at the end of break for me. So, you know, we've gotten into regular practice, we get up, have our coffee, we talk, we go for a run, we're continually, you know, having conversations. And, um, I would just be a, a freaking mess if she wasn't around. So she that's awesome. <laughs> keeps me on track. So yeah. I could see how she would be very good at keeping just about anybody on track. <laughs> yes, amen. Amen. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's awesome. This has been a really great conversation, Brad. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for having me, Susie. And uh, just best of um, God's blessings on journey church. I know you guys are doing great things and um you know, I know you guys were probably excited about a, a new year and um, I'm sure you have great plans for it. And I hope God grants you, um, Thank you. all the desires of your heart. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for being with us today. Yeah. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for joining us today on the Journey Now podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts.